I promised that this would be a cross-functional podcast, and episode two delivers as we move into the R&D side of gene and cell therapy development. In this episode of The Issue on the ASGCT Podcast Network, we have an in-depth interview with Dr. Tom McCauley, the CSO of Omega Therapeutics and former global head of non-clinical development at Shire. We talk about his path from condensed matter physics to leading teams of scientists elaborating the next generation of molecular therapeutics. We also dive into our mutual experience in the early days of in vivo gene editing and discuss the challenges one faces with the complexities of moving these products into the clinic, particularly before there is much of a roadmap for development. Additionally, we cover the recent public ADCOM and ultimate approval of Cascavi and how we hope the industry continues to evolve and set standards as we move forward novel approaches. Lastly, we talk about the promising advancement in increasing the specificity of these technologies and where we hope the technology is able to take us in the future. We hope you enjoy the conversation. But first, I want you to know that groundbreaking science starts with you. The ASGCT annual meeting wants your latest gene and cell therapy research. Submit an abstract by January 26th and share your innovative work with a global community of more than 7,000 attendees. From CRISPR to cancer immunotherapies, this pioneering event showcases discoveries on the edge of what's possible. Stake your place at the ASGCT annual meeting because when it comes to the future of transformative healthcare, your discoveries deserve to be seen in Baltimore, May 7 through 11. Dr. Tom McCauley, welcome to The Issue on the ASGCT Podcast Network. So Thank you, you and I, <laughs> you and I first met uh, at Shire many moons ago, uh, and yes. and it turns out that our first gene and cell therapy program was actually the same program. Uh, it was an AAV in vivo gene editing for hemophilia, which was partnered with uh, Sangamo. Um, mm. But before we got there, before we even got to Shire, you started off with a PhD in condensed matter and materials physics. Um, and, and now, of course, you find yourself as the CSO of Omega Therapeutics. How, what was your path? What was your career path? <laughs> <laughs> Tell me a little. <laughs> No, that that is an excellent question, Emily. Um, <laughs> my uh, condensed matter physics past uh, started in the sort of late '80s and '90s, and you know, with a an eye towards the, the key there is the applied aspect of of physics. My goal in uh, in studying engineering and physics as an undergraduate, uh, in particular, was was really with an eye towards applications in terms of how you know ultimately it sounds funny to say, but how science could serve. And engineering could serve humanity. And so, as I was finishing graduate school and moving into a postdoc, um, it really was sort of the beginning of the genomics revolution. Um, you know, many of the first uh, microarray scanners were designed and built by physicists who had avocations on the biological side of the world um, in in close collaboration. Um, and so, I was made as a postdoc, made a conscious switch into the life sciences. I joined a very an eclectic and very productive 
team of, of scientists led by a guy named Marty Stanton at Brandeis University at the Rosenstiel Basic Medical Sciences Research Center um, and spent a couple of, of very, uh, very interesting years there um, learning the business from the ground up at the bench, pipetting on up, uh, assay development and the like while doing, you know, an eclectic mix of things, including sort of hardware and software development for protein crystallography detection, and then moving very rapidly in that space through some grants through the Department of Defense uh, and the NIH into developing solid phase arrays uh, using aptamers at the time uh, to detect initially biowarfare agents, uh, but it became very rapidly apparent to us that there was a, a nascent proteomics uh, enterprise in that type of technology. And so, uh, we attracted funding and spun out a company called Archimix at the time, which uh, originally gestated uh, within Brandeis's walls, but eventually moved out onto its own. And over the course of the next seven years, uh, went on to put several programs into development and, and a couple into the clinic in phase one and phase two for uh, one was a direct thrombin inhibitor, one was a von Willebrand factor antagonist, another was a, a complement, C5 complement um, inhibitor that was eventually licensed out and has made its way, I believe, to the market in, uh, in one form or another. So it was uh, uh, an incredibly diverse and dynamic trial by fire in the beginning. Uh, but I think that the unusual um, trajectory that I took starting in, you know, really in startup biotech and then subsequently moving to larger and larger companies really gave me an unusual perspective in the sense I think most people in this space either start and end in biotech or start in larger pharma and sort of work slowly, you know, perhaps become disenchanted with certain aspects of that and then jump to biotech. Um, having started in the biotech space and really gotten a bird's eye view of the what it takes to, to have an integrated, you know, fully integrated biotechnology company um, in terms of the, the multidisciplinary nature of everything that goes on, I found it was it was that integrative aspect of all of those different functions and the expertise behind those that, that really attracted me. And it became clear to me that the training, the sort of systems engineering aspect of my training became very, very helpful in terms of being able to connect the dots between all of those various functions where often it seemed that, you know, organic or synthetic chemists had trouble talking to molecular biologists who had trouble talking to, you know, folks who were in other disciplines as well. And I, coming into that as an outsider forced me to learn that very, very early and became very, very helpful in, you know, building and leading a team you know, as I did at Shire uh, at the point at which we met. So that said, I did uh, I did do most of the roles that I ultimately ended up managing. So uh, <laughs> I'm proud of that. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, no, it's it's funny. I I, I just want to maybe double click a little bit on what you just said because uh, in in some of the other conversations we've been having on the podcast, uh, the the concept of team comes up a lot, um, and I think that mm -hmm. uh, what is amazing about gene and cell therapy is it absolutely can never be a, a solo pursuit, right? The the mm -hmm. complexities of of the entirety of the package you have to put together um, to not only just go into the clinic for the first time, but also then get approved, takes so many different disciplines. And I, I think you're right, you know, it behooves us, as as you put it, to, to learn how to speak all the languages uh, involved in that uh, in order to make sure, you know, the team that's prosecuting a, a new therapy is actually all pulling uh, in the same direction. <laughs> Absolutely. And I think just the to start out with, to have the humility to recognize that no one discipline will have all the answers right. you know, for drug for drug development. Absolutely. 
Right. No, it's it's uh, absolutely true. Um, okay, so let's let's go back in time then uh, to to when we were both at Shire. I, I think you know prior to that you'd worked uh, uh, prior to the time that we got assigned to uh, the the program uh, with the AAVs and the in vivo gene editing. Like you and I had had sort of worked on every other modality <laughs> except for gene gene therapy. <laughs> And that I'm just curious, what were your biggest surprises when we started working on the alliance? One thing that became immediately became, uh, I think, important in the beginnings of that program was that was on the regulatory side, sort of the, the existence of what was relatively newly created pre-pre-IND meetings, mm. I think now now known as Interact meetings, which in the, the early days of of the cell and gene therapy division now now called OTAT, but I think the recognition on the part of the agency that you know a, a specialized group of people was going to be necessary to you know sort of help guide and nurture this nascent field um, through the regulatory process was was really important. And I I mean personally, I, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts too. But I found those first you know really informal, incredibly informal relative to the usual um, rigor of the and formality of the regulatory process. But those those first informal discussions just to you know level set and get a sense of you know what the regulatory expectations were likely to be for that program and for the product were inc- i think incredibly helpful in driving internal decision making and and helping to really understand you know what that development plan might look like but uh, i'd be interested in your thoughts on that as well no i i totally agree i think what was interesting to me was just how different cber and otat were compared to my sort of past experience and how open they were to answering, um, collaboratively answering, like, what are some pretty heady, um, maybe a little bit open-ended types of questions um, when no one has all the information, right? Like, it, we, we're just starting out. We we don't know what we don't know even, um, and mm-hmm. how they tended to approach um, very collaboratively giving feedback. I, I agree with you mm-hmm. on that. I mean, I think I would say for, you know, I'm sure you've experienced this as well in developing multiple products. In general, that the that spirit of collaboration, I I I was very, very pleased to see it, but in some ways it's not surprising, right? In a way, most of the we, we think it tend to think of the folks on the other side of the table at the agencies as as being regulators when in fact they were scientists and physicians first, right? And so right. I think engaging them on a scientific basis is a you know was a a great way to start a collaboration without the you know charged overhead of of having to navigate the the full process right up front. Right. Yeah. No, I, I that's a great point. I think to your point, like the submissions were also like what we gave them to sort of mull over was also very different because, you know, we spent time sort of educating them about, you know, you know, here's our logic. Here's why we think this way here, you know, here are, you know, the caveats uh, and here's how we're addressing them. Like, do you agree? Um, (laughs) It's, it was a very different sort of interaction as well. Um, Very focused on sort of cross educational, you know, conversation. Yeah, no, those uh, are, they, I, I would say they've been a great tool overall just throughout the last, you know, 10 or 12, 15 years now, whatever it's been, uh, just in terms of guiding our, you know, thinking as sponsors for the development of certainly of that editing program, but other innovative therapies since then. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. So one of my other like big surprises was immediately how obvious it became that one needed to speak the language of your CMC 
uh, analytical mm. expert. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Like, I mean, put- I, I, there was something I could ignore when it was small molecules. <laughs> True. I mean, I think, no, that's a very good point. I mean, and, and just to set the stage for the discussion, I mean, that was an, you know, quite a complex drug product, both on the drug substance side and on the, the drug product side, right? It was actually a sort of tripartite thing with two different, you know, zinc fingers plus a transgene. So right. it was, you know, even in the context of a, you know, a fairly complex biologic, somebody who had, had experience with complex biologics in the past, this was another order of magnitude, I would say more complex, you know, if only because of the, you know, the number of different streams that kind of flowed into, into the CMC work, as you said, and the relatively crude state of technology, I would say at that point for really assessing those, both in terms of potency, as well as specificity and things like that. And really, in many ways, having to build the plane while you're flying it, and developing some of those methods and then having to develop them internally and then often to, to transfer those to a CRO or a CDMO who often did not have any prior experience with the, with the modality broadly. Right. And so you had to do the work both of internally developing the method, but then also essentially teach teach the CRO how to do it in, in order for them to be able to validate it and then you know ultimately do the analyses that you needed them to do. So yeah, that was a the, the CMC aspects, the tech tech ops aspects of of that program were were not to be underestimated. I completely agree. Right. Yeah. And and I I think what what I noticed as well was concepts around with with other you know small molecule drugs if you will like you never know which of which of the your two species one rodent one non rodent <laughs> is going to be the most representative of what you should expect when you get to the uh, the clinic but but with with these kinds of therapies it's sort of layer and layer and layer of first of all which species is most representative for the transduction efficiency of the AAV versus the efficacy uh to be expected from the payload uh, uh mm-hmm. etc and so there were so many things and i i just remember i don't know if you do as well like those first weeks I felt like my brain was, was going to burst because every time I followed one one part of the therapy and and sort of figured out or thought I figured out something like there would be this whole nother question uh, that that, um, you know, you had to sort of sort through as well. Yeah, no, from a from a development and translational perspective, as you said, I mean, you know, you're contending with on a technical level with all of the things you mentioned, but particularly, you know, just overall the lack of an established benchmark or, you know, framework within which to to think about translation, right? From right. you mentioned sort of differential transduction efficiency across species, you know, differences in sequence of the target locus and and the sort of complexity and variability, you know, genomically within thinking about the ultimate, you know, human patient population, which played into some of the discussions that have been had recently around specificity for some of the gene therapy products that have just been approved. But also, you know, how do you how do you think even from a basic perspective, you know, for, in the small molecule world, right, to draw that illusion, you know, there's a very well established, you know, guidance around estimating safe starting dose in humans using allometric scaling, right, which has been, you know, extended now to biologics and different settings, um, but which doesn't apply generally to, you know, in the genetic therapy space. And so trying to understand from cellular biochemical and cellular systems to, you know, in vivo model systems in rodents to non-human primates, 
you know, exactly what does 10 to the 12 or 13 vector genomes per kilo mean, you know, when you think about ultimate potency and, and, and clearly safety in, in a human setting, right? So I completely concur that the, there was not an established framework, you know, to really guide that initially. And we had to, as you said, be driven by the data in terms of thoughtful experimental design and, and sort of learning as we, as we went. Right. And like what you said actually totally, um, you know, took me back. And and one of the other big surprises, right, which is not a surprise, right? The site that you try to edit in a human may not be conserved perfectly <laughs> in the in your preclinical species. <laughs> or and, at all, and, yeah. And, and, or at all. And 100%, um, the off-target sites that might exist in a human are definitely not going to be conserved. And so, mm -hmm. you know, between the yeah, on-target right. and off-target uh, you know, it was such a multi-layer challenge, right, to come to dose projection because you first had, you know, the, you know, transduction efficiency, which might be different between species depending on which cells you're trying to edit. Then you have uh, basically the actual coming together of all the three components in, in this particular case, the percent editing on target <laughs> that you had to consider. And at the end of the day, it was, it was a, um, you know, it was generally sort of a story we had to tell between in vitro and in vivo data, sort of trying to harmonize and trying to sort of draw the thread across to say, you know, using, you know, this vector, these zinc fingers, you know, this is the amount of editing we would expect, et cetera, and, and come up with a dose that way. But it was not, um, it was not a straightforward endeavor by any stretch of the imagination. No, com completely agree. Um, and I would, I would argue it still isn't. Right. Um, I, you know, <laughs> um, I think, you know, a lot has been learned in the intervening years, I would say, but there's, and, and there are, to be fair, there, you know, there are many different angles from which you can construct a, a you know, scientifically valid rationale for, for dose setting for these, for these various therapies, but right. um, it is, it, it's by no means um, consolidated at this point. I think that's a terrific way to put it. It is by no means consolidated. <laughs> um, you mentioned uh, some of the recent approvals, and and I have to say, you know, I I, I totally agree. So you know, with Exacel Cascavi being recently approved, and the Adcom, you know, prior to that approval, which sort of I think walked everyone through in very good detail uh, the on and off target editing that was you know performed uh, to look at that um, that therapy. It, it does at least start to approximate, at least for ex vivo gene editing, mm -hmm. a a sort of a starting benchmark. Um, and yeah. and I think also, you know, the the fact that there was conversation and and you know people had a discourse around the pros and cons of the various approaches used. Like it feels like that was, um, you know, a at least a start for for if there's a team right now in discovery trying to figure out you know how to do this for their you know ex vivo therapy like that's a good place to start give that a listen <laughs> um but in those yeah. early days we didn't even like we we were trying to sort it through and and i guess did you have any surprises as we were trying to sort it through like what was the the biggest sort of aha moment for you <sighs> Yeah, I mean, thinking thinking back now, sort of in you know in the context of all the other modalities that have since been applied to this, right? The extent of of your concern is going to depend on, to large extent, on the modality, right? So in that case, it was it was sort of you know insertional 
gene transfer, right? Which is you know fairly fairly invasive <laughs> genomically, right? You know, as opposed to something like you know genetic therapy. Uh, at the mRNA level or using base editing, right? Where you're making a relatively small change potentially versus, uh, you know, gene writing, right? Using transposons or, or other approaches to, to, to you know, cut and paste large segments of the genome. I think the sort of risk profile of those is going to vary somewhat depending on modality mm-hmm. or like in our case, we're, we're doing epigenetic modulation, which, you know, has its own assessments. But in general, I would, for example, be less concerned about a transient off target for an epigenetic effector whose substrate might not exist at a random point in the genome, whereas a transient, you know, off target for a, a something that's going to make a single or double-stranded break is, is you know, would, would lead to more concern in my mind for long-term, for example. So, you know, we, we started with perhaps the most severe case you can imagine um, in, in that regard. Um, and so, you know, I think appropriately we were uh, looked at it, tried to look at it comprehensively. I mean, I think that, again, the it was one of the struggles i think was just the the limited lack of precedent on the one on the one hand in terms of understanding both from a basic scientific perspective what the most relevant system was you know in terms of you know in vitro either in silico work or in vitro you know cellular assay biochemical assay or or as you said in vivo where in the in vivo setting because of all the variability that you mentioned and lack of translational fidelity potentially between you know, rodents, which are the easiest to study and, and human, you know, you could look at the sort of net effect, for example, of a given dose and a given constellation of potential indels and things on overall safety, you know, at a high level, but it's not necessarily going to tell you exactly what's what you might be able to expect in, in human. And so, the the lack of, again, a consolidated, you know, c- consensus, you know, in terms of industry best practice around how to how to do those assessments and what would be acceptable, you know, in terms of underwriting clinical safety for a first in human for, you know, again, a novel, novel modality was, you know, was a bit challenging. I think the, you know, the, I guess I, I was heartened, you know, in, in looking over the adcom documents, you know, from the Cascavi adcom recently. I mean, it, the, the nice thing there, I think, was that the clinical data showed very, very clearly that they had a very high, you know, complete response rate, essentially. So, efficacy was not really at issue. It was really, you know, they could really focus in um, and they did around, you know, what are the potential safety concerns specifically, you know, around around sort of the on and off target piece. But I would say that, you know, based on the commentary there and the, and the vote at the end, you know, that there is, you know, emerging consensus around the use of, you know, a combination of in silico and in vitro cellular data and assessment mm-hmm. to, to look at off target, you know, as as we and others have done in the past as well. You know, I think that the the main question, and you saw it in some of the comments of the advisors, was really more around the sort of extent and volume of data that you would generate in those in those regards in terms of, you know, I think they they used a, a relatively, you know, modest number of, you know, cell lines from healthy volunteers and um sickle sickle cell patients and and other other patients with with um, mutations, but the question is, how many do you need to look at to to understand? You know, either in silico, I think they used something like sixty one, ultimately sort of whole genome sequences to to do the in silico analysis, and then you know a, again a, a sort of handful of of cell lines to do the the cellular analysis. But you know, in the in the argument of the sponsors, they you know they believe that what the results that they got were representative of what they were likely to see in a patient population. And overall, I would, I mean, the, the committee clearly agreed, um, right. you know, and so, you know, the question really is, and, and, and this, you know, it may change over time in terms of striking a balance between what is, 
you know, what is currently or, or may soon be technologically possible and what is appropriate and what is feasible, frankly, too, um, in terms of thinking about this as a sponsor for certainly for, for First in Human, where you have to think about the, you know, benefit risk as well, right? I think one of the okay. advisors made a comment about explicitly, they definitely got it, right? That, you know, not, not letting the perfect be the enemy of the, of the good enough in terms of a therapy that could really make a difference for patients for whom there really weren't any, you know, therapeutic options at that point. So, you know, it's no surprise that these therapies are applied first in the rare, rare disease field, monogenic disease field, you know, but I think as, as the field evolves and as technology gets better, both and you know, in terms of specificity broadly, I do think you know the, the ultimate hope would be that these these therapies could be applied to more common diseases. I would say certainly, but you know, I yeah. think uh, I, I look forward to the field evolving in that direction. Yeah, and a- absolutely. I think you know you you summarize the adcom incredibly well, and and I guess I should you know full disclosure for folks who who don't uh, know you know I was the program lead. For XSL from the time it was a development candidate until it went into the clinic for the first time. So I am team XSL from that perspective. Um, uh, that said, uh, you know, I think, uh, I think, I think you summarized perfectly what um, the committee sort of took away from it, um, uh, from the data. And they and they did seem to, I think, deeply understand sort of the limitations of where we are from uh, from a technological ability to discern rare events, um, uh, but also um, the, the true sort of biology underpinning a lot of, of these things, you know, chromatin, chromatin matters. Uh, um, yes. So context Indeed. matters. Different, yeah. different patients might have different um, um, uh, off-target profiles because, because of that. And, and so it mm-hmm. is that balance that one has to strike. And, and I think you're right, sort of calling it out as a risk benefit balance. Like I, I would not be surprised to see a, a bar be slightly higher, um, for, uh, novel entrants into the field in the sickle cell arena for these mm-hmm. kinds of assessments, uh, simply because now there is a therapy that is, uh, that is marketed and available to folks. And so, I, I think it'll be really interesting to see, first of all, you know, does this, does this, you know, you know, let's say starting benchmark become uh, something more formalized by guidance or, uh, or, or FDA recommendation. And then number two, like, how does that evolve over time as we should and ought to continue to sort of press ourselves to raise our game and, you know, help, help patients as much as possible. So. Um, yep. No, we, no, f- fully agree. I mean, we continue to sort of, you know, compete with, but also learn from each other as sponsors, right? And you know, right. the bar in this case has been set, as you said. And I would fully expect, as technology and experience with these products becomes greater, that that bar will go up in terms of what the expectations would be, even in the even in the near term. I would think. Right, and 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 I think this points out, right? The the XSL case is is in some ways is such a simpler case, right? It's it's ex vivo, uh, it's it's still imperfect, right? Because when you when you assess your editing efficiency, uh, uh, you're you're looking at a subset of cells, and those cells, by definition, won't be the ones going into the patient. And so there's still this limitation of our ability to fully. Uh, catalog, let's say, on and off-target editing, it's even more complicated in the case of in vivo gene editing products. Um, but I think that, you know, as an industry, we we have to sort of continue to figure out 
novel technologies that allow us to do the best possible job at, at cataloging these things. Yeah, I completely agree. Both, both, I would say, during clinical development, but also in the post-market setting for editing as well. Absolutely. So beyond, um, I, I think we've talked about a, a number of uh, sort of challenges, um, but beyond sort of on and off targets, um, you know, species differences, what else uh, sort of really shocked you, I guess, or, or what, what do you want to see, let's say, development teams really focus on as, as the field continues to grow? What, what do we need to keep in mind? Mm. Yeah, I think gathering and putting in writing some sort of industry consensus in the form of white papers and other things, which ultimately should lead to guidance, what would ideally be sort of an internationally harmonized um, agency guidance around what, you know, just as we, as we just discussed, I mean, it's from our previous conversation, it's sort of stating the obvious, right? But it would be a gift to the field, right? To have a clear, harmonized guidance on both, I would say both the preclinical assessment, but also the, the clinical you know, clinical development and and post-market expectations around safety evaluation, um, specifically, you know, looking at duration and and expectations around, particularly in the post-market setting for for sort of data standards and compliance for for long-term safety follow-up. Mm-hmm. Where you know, as as you know, you know, for many of these um, in the rare disease field in particular, there are often registries, you know. Um, in the post-market space that that attempt to collect this sort of real-world data that will inform, you know, use of the product and, and underwrite safety and, you know, ultimately uh, help physicians and patients. But the collection of that data is, you know, can be laborious both for the sponsor, but also for the patient who, you know, patients who, in terms of collection of that follow-up data, depending on what sorts of data and samples and and the timing of that, and and which, you know, could potentially go on for years after, after the clinical trial experience, you know, it is a, a sort of multi multifaceted question where the sort of the needs of of the, the agency and the patients and the ability to, you know on the sponsor side to really understand what the long-term implications of of these products are which is you know it is our our obligation and responsibility to do so that's one that would be one one big wish uh, on my list and then you know on the on the technology side you know we talked about specificity in, in the sense of you know on off target at the genomic level but I think we spoke briefly before about the sort of extension of this of genetic technologies broadly, you know, to other therapeutic spaces beyond the rare monogenic. Um, and I think, you know, in order for that to be realized, particularly for for the modalities like editing, where you're you're permanently altering the genome um, in some way, but or even for you know other therapies where you know the genes are mod- being modulated for months or years at a time. There needs to be a, a significant improvement in the specificity of targeting overall, right? Where mm. that's in sort of two, it needs to be addressed, I think, at two different levels, right? And the first, you know, from thinking about the drug products level at the first part, you know, it's, I think it's a delivery question, right? Which is a, a major, you know, issue and, and area of active, active work in the field where, you know, concentrating the incurred dose into the appropriate tissue and organ system Cellular and tissue compartment, compartment yeah. and the right cell types within that, because many yeah. times it's a very complex mixture, right? Um, you know, limiting and in so doing, limiting, maximizing your potency by getting it on target and then limiting your off off tissue exposure um, is going to be critical. 
the field has has advanced, right? Even in the time, you know, intervening years since since we worked on the hemophilia program, um, I think you know targeted delivery has has made some real gains. But I think there needs to, there needs to be sort of continued focus uh, and and is uh, as well as other levers to to enforce cell type specificity, right? Whether it is at the sequence engineering level you know, for the transgene component or for an mRNA payload, you know, embedding, for example, you know, microRNA binding sites in the UTRs of a therapeutic mRNA to cell, you know, enforce cell type specificity, for for example. Um, there are a lot of different levers that I think can be pulled and have not been fully utilized in sort of driving specificity at that level. But then, you know, as we talked about at the genomic level, just continuing to drive the evolution of ever better molecules with, you know, in terms of both the DNA binding domains or aspects of that, as well as either tailored and in, in some cases, maybe even switchable enzymatic components, right? Mm. Which could potentially be turned off, you know, after their work is done so as to not constitutively produce machinery that could could theoretically create indels uh, over time, things right. like that. So, I think there's there's a lot to be done, but I think I think we know what uh, what lies before us. Yeah, and I think you know maybe to to bring it back to where we started in, in the first place, right? Uh, the challenge that teams face uh, who are actively pursuing these things is always the same, which is the the sort of uh, how representative will non clinical species be <laughs> at at telling you if if you know how well you're targeting you know a specific subset of cells, and then and then once you are in the clinic. How do you convince yourself uh, uh, in a in a human <laughs> that you hit what you wanted to hit and you didn't hit what you didn't want to hit? You know, I think I think there's so many layers to this, um, but also I, it's it's sort of work we have to do. So we have to figure mm -hmm. it out at the end of the day. Yeah, I would completely agree. I mean, I'm I'm heartened, you know, certainly in our our own work. I mean, the the amount of information. That can now be gleaned just from things you can extract from a liquid biopsy, for example, without right. having to resort to a, a tissue biopsy, right? You know, looking at cell-free DNA, looking at the contents of exosomes or other constituents of the blood where you can look at target engagement with your gene target, phenotypic change in gene expression, you know, as well as, as the normal sorts of biomarkers that you might otherwise look at. I think a lot of progress has been made in that regard and I, it will continue to be made, which I think will, you know, make the burden potentially on patients less as the field continues to evolve. Absolutely. And I think that hammers home also where we started, which is this is going to take a team. You know, it's going to take big teams of experts in, you know, cell-free <laughs> DNA assays. It's going to take teams of ex experts in on and off target editing and in LNP design and, uh, you know, all parts of the, um, the big picture in order to be successful in this industry. So, okay. So I'm going to close this out with a final question. My favorite final Ooh. question, which is <laughs> if you had a magic wand <laughs> and could fix one thing <laughs> for cell and gene therapy development, what would it be? Ooh, a magic wand. So I, I cheated in the sense that I submitted two wishes before when I talked about both <laughs> gui harmonized guidance and specificity. I think if, if I had one wish, I would aim it at the molecular level. Because okay. I think the understanding by industry and, and regulatory agencies will ultimately catch up. But uh, I would advance the technological aspect of this to make make these drugs truly pristine in terms of their their specificity to, to allow their application much more broadly. Absolutely. I like that. I like that a lot. Wonderful. Well, Tom McCauley, thank you so much for joining us today. And thanks for spending time um, uh, sharing your your insights. 
You're very welcome, Emily. Thanks. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for the invitation.